All right, so I want to start uh, by just discussing a couple things of where we ended last time. Uh, talking about the leading of the Spirit. And one of the things that the Spirit leads us into is greater and greater assurance that we really belong in the family. But yet, probably in your own life, maybe in the lives of others that you care about, people struggle with assurance, you know? It kind of goes up and down sometimes. Some people struggle with this more than others. Uh, some, some Christians, you know, they lay hold of Christ, Christ lays hold of them, and they never really struggle with this. But a lot of Christians do. And so I just want to think about that a little bit, because this is a specifically a ministry of the Spirit to testify to us, to our spirit, that we are the children of God. So how is it that some Christians will struggle more than other Christians, you know, with us? Is like that a sign of, like, spiritual immaturity, you know, like, the people who never struggle with this are really mature, and those who do struggle sometimes, those are immature. Is that the way to explain this? Like, what is it, you know? And I don't think that's the case. I, I think some, some believers who uh, are like the most faithful people I know, you know, maybe have struggled <laughs> a lot with this over the years, you know. Uh, whereas sometimes there are people who are professing Christ and who are living in sin, and they never doubt. They're just like, oh yeah, I'm good. <laughs> you're like, wait a second. What, maybe you should be dead. <laughs> like, there's like these different things that you observe over, over the years. So I just want to think, why is it that a person could struggle with the confidence that they really belong in the family, with the confidence, with the assurance of their own salvation? What are the possible reasons for that? Just, and, and part of the reason I want to talk about this is just to see that there are lots of different possibilities. Uh, there's no one answer to this question. So uh, what are some of the reasons someone might struggle with doubts and fears from time to time? Yeah. Legalism. So like flesh that out a little bit more. What do you, what do you mean? Yeah, I need to keep living up to these kind of standards to maintain my status, right? Yeah. 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 So, so this this has to do a lot with. I mean, a lot of that has to do with doctrine, really. Like, there there might be need to be, like, correction in their theology and in their teaching, if this is the case. Because I mean, it's just a you know, simple illustration, if somebody is, if your church or someone is teaching you regularly that if you sin, like, you have lost your salvation. I mean, just to put it very plainly, like, and this is, you know, taught, like, if you, if you willfully sin against the Lord, you have lost your standing with God. Like, if if somebody is teaching you that, like, you're probably going to end up struggling with your assurance, you know, because you are, like, because we do sin, and we know that we sin because we choose to sin. And so if I've been taught that if I do that, I am now no longer God's child, I'm no longer God's family, that's going to have effects on the assurance of my salvation. I'm going to want to get like saved all over again repeatedly. and event, you know, so, that, so there could be a lot of things having to do with, like, I have this view that it, you know, I have to maintain my status with God through being really good. And I'm not, and I still struggle to be really good, and so like I'm struggling with this assurance. Those are those are all in one category. What are other possibilities? Yeah. People with uh, lack of 
With a what? Yeah. 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 So, so I think some of this, just to, to be open, it has to do with personality and, and just the way that God has even wired the person. Like some of us tend to be more analytical, more introspective, uh, tend to be more emotional. I mean, there's just differences of people. And, and a, particularly a person who's very introspective, like very analytical, uh, they will often struggle more than another person. With this, like, um, you know, as they like maybe <clears throat> think about like all the things that they're doing and and are like analyzing every act. And if I had like impure motives, or if I didn't say the right thing here or there, if, you know, they, and they just are always thinking through these things, and that can be one of the reasons that someone struggles more than another uh, with this. Um, what are other possibilities? Yeah, suffering. suffering. Yeah, this suffering can cause discouragement, can cause us to question whether God is really for us. Like, if this is happening to me, like, and I'm God's child, like, like is that really? Am I really his child? Like, would he really let this happen to me? Uh, also, I think related to suffering is the silence of God. You know, like, so we're, like, crying out to God for something. And this could be because of suffering, or this could be because of, you know, we're, we're crying out to God for the salvation of someone we care about. And we cry out, and we, we keep praying, and we keep trying and trying and to minister the gospel we keep praying and it seems like god doesn't hear our prayers like god doesn't do anything and that disorients us and we struggle sometimes and these these are the kinds of things that cause pe- people to to struggle uh, another possibility and i think you have to keep this in mind is that maybe a person is not a true believer you know like <laughs> that's a possibility you know and so i'm thinking like as you as you are counseling people helping people like you how do you figure this out you know because if uh like maybe a person's just got a very tender conscience you know like some people need to have a more tender conscience (laughs) probably uh and others like any time that they ever sin against the lord they are just so grieved by this like and they're and they're crushed by this uh whereas another person might be just blatantly sinning and chasing after sin and not listening to the spirit in any in these areas of their life and if it's the spirit's role to assure us that we belong in the family and i'm not following the spirit i'm like intentionally not listening to the spirit in these areas of my life like it would not be surprising to me for us to struggle with assurance if that's a ministry of god's holy spirit to us so so you have all of these kinds of possibilities and what we have to do is we have to really listen to people. Like we have to sit, to, like if they come to you and they're struggling, like I, you need to ask questions. Like if, let's suppose you're talking with someone and, and let's suppose they're actually not a Christian. Okay, like they really don't even understand the gospel. But yet they've thought that they're a believer. Like maybe they just were in some setting where it was just like, you know, very like easy believe kind of thing and they just like were like just pray this prayer and you're a believer and then they baptize them and, and the person's always thought they're a believer but but maybe they don't even really understand the gospel and so they come to you and they say hey you know i'm struggling with my stand like whether i'm really a believer or not and you just i'm like hey i know exactly what to do let's go to john 10 look you're in the father's hand nothing's going to take you out of the father's hand 
you, you give them this great verse, but like that might be the wrong medicine, you know, for that problem. Like maybe you should ask them like, you know, what are you, what are you trusting in for your standing with God? And see if they even understand the gospel. Like it maybe would have found out through the conversation, this person doesn't even know really what Christ has done for them. Maybe they're not really leaning on Christ at all. Maybe they're not even a believer. You know, but then you come to another person and, uh, you know, the person's like, I'm struggling with, with assurance. And you, and you share all these encouraging verses. And what's happening in their life is they're, is they're living in adultery. <laughs> you know, but you never, like, ask, like, any questions of, like, are, you, are there areas in your life, like, where you're not following the Spirit? You know, and you just try to give them all these really assure, assuring, encouraging verses while they're living over here in unrepentant sin, you know. But then the other person, you know, maybe is, has this really tender conscience and they're struggling, and then you kind of like drop the hammer on them. <laughs> you know, like you don't need, you need to just believe. And, and maybe you're not even a Christian if you're doubting, and you're like dropping the hammer on them with this, and they're already like wounded and hurting. <laughs> you know, and maybe what they need is, is the reminder that, look, Christ loves you. He is for you. And you can, you can find rest in the love of God for you. You know, like I'm, I'm just saying like this, this, this is a role of the Spirit, but often we are going to be part of helping people through this. And when I talk with someone, I cannot, I, I need to remember, I cannot guarantee like that they're going to feel assured. That's not really my role. But I do need to really listen. And I need to, th- I need to help them think through what's happening and why it is that they're struggling and point them to the scriptures. And then we trust the spirit that over time the spirit assures the children of God that they really belong uh, in the family. So just one thing I wanted to touch base on from the last uh, class. Now, now, as you come into chapter 8, verse uh, 17, so God adopts us as his children through the Spirit, and the Spirit assures us that this is true, that we really are God's children. And then verse 17 says, and if we're children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, I don't know if you have any hopes of, like, any great inheritance, you know. <laughs> Maybe you've got some uncle you don't know somewhere who's got like all kinds of money sitting around and he's going to like pass it on to you. I think this is probably unlikely for most of us, but we, we are going to inherit an incredible promise. We're going to inherit the world. <laughs> I think as you, as you think of the last time, I think that Paul talked about this, that God promised Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world, <laughs> you know, and if we're God's children, we're Abraham's children, we are going to inherit the world, like we're going to inherit everything, the, the new heavens, the new earth, I mean, we are full members of the family, so much so that we are heirs, joint heirs with Jesus, of all the things that Jesus is going to inherit, he's, we're going to, he's going to share it all with us, because he's so gracious, so our final inheritance, when you think of what it is, I think it, it is basically the new creation, I think that's really what Paul's going to talk about in this text, it's the glory of being with God and with his son, looking like his son, enjoying him and each other forever in the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. This is where the Spirit of God is leading all the sons of God to the promised land. But it's in that that last verse, verse 17, that you enter the new section in Romans 8. It's where the transition happens. Because in verse 17, Paul reminds us that the path home isn't going to be an easy one. The inheritance in front of us is far better than anything we could imagine, but the path to it is going to go not around suffering, but right through it. The path for the sons 
will be the path of the Son. It will be a road marked by suffering. If you look at verse 17 again, he says, if we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The path to glory with Jesus is the hard road of suffering with Jesus. This thought then sets the stage for everything that comes in the next section. This whole section is really Paul's encouragement to us all to embrace the truth that the path to glory with Jesus will run right through suffering. Now, the section can be a little bit hard to follow because the argument's pretty tight. Okay, so like, again, this, Paul does this periodically. Like, you'll see like verse 18 starts with the word for, verse 19 with the word for, verse 20 with the word for, 22 with the word for, 24 with the word for, okay? So this is another really tight argument. And you have to take it kind of slow. You gotta think through each, each movement uh, in the argument. And so I, wanna, I want us to read the text. We're gonna do verses 18 through 25. Okay, so someone wanna read 8, 18 through 25. That'll be our first text to look at today. Very good, thanks. <clears throat> now, I think that text right there is probably the least known in Romans 8. You know, Romans 8 is a very well-known chapter. This is probably the section of Romans 8 that gets the least attention, but this is a great text. So I want to think about what we just read. What's the big idea of what we just read? Suffering. And uh, what, what do you, a little bit more words, you know, than that. Like, what, what's the idea? I think the big idea is probably in the first verse, verse 18. What about suffering? Yeah, yeah. That the, that the sufferings that we go through are, are not worth comparing with the glory that's in front of us. And you have to remember what Paul said. It says, you know, we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. The path to future glory with Jesus is the hard road of suffering now with Jesus. But that raises this question. Is that future glory really worth the pain and the suffering now? And I think that's how the text moves from the last section to this section. It's, it's kind of answering that question. Is, is that glory really worth it? Is it worth identifying with Jesus and suffering? And what's Paul's answer? His answer is verse 18, which is like an emphatic yes. <laughs> yes, it is. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us and in us. Paul says, listen, when you put the two things right next to each other, the glory that awaits and the present pain, they're not even worth comparing. And that's probably the main point of this, of this section. And it's very similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Maybe you can think of this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, what does, you remember 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says uh, that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, do you remember what it says? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Okay. Now sometimes when we read texts like this, especially if we happen to be going through suffering at the time, we can almost feel like Paul's kind of ignoring like our, our pain. You know, he just kind of like talks about it as if it doesn't, as if it doesn't matter. Okay. So to, on that, I want to say a couple things about that. One is that this is not being said by a guy uh, who doesn't know the pain of suffering. Like Paul is a man who's suffered a lot. 
for following Jesus, and he's the one saying this. I mean, you just read the stories of what Paul went through in his life, how many times he was arrested, beaten, slandered, shipwrecked. And you can read about he struggled, how he struggled with hunger, health, physical things that he pled with God to remove, and God didn't remove them. I mean, he, he, he suffered in all kinds of different ways. This is not written by a guy who never suffered or who had an easy life. And second, and more importantly, the point Paul's making is not primarily about how hard or painful the hardships are. Like, he's not really aiming at that. Like, the point he's making is about how awesome the future glory is, about the weight of the future glory that's in front of us. And he's saying if you, if you grasp the weight of the glory that's in front of you, then you'll see that whatever you do go through here is simply not worth comparing with that. He's not trying to say it doesn't hurt or it's not hard, but his, his eyes are on the future glory and saying, like, if you, if you really grasp this, like, you'll realize no matter what happens here, like, it just, you just can't compare the two. Like, they're not even in the, same, in the same category. When you finally get there and you experience that kind of glory, all the pain that came before it will just become like a, like a distant memory of days long gone of sorrows and pains that you know you'll never experience again. So now what is the glory? This is the second question. So what is the glory that Paul's talking about in the passage? Now we've already kind of had some, some clues about this, but I want to look to the text for this. What is the glory that awaits us? It's so great that the present suffering can't be compared to it, but what is it? Okay, so let's go back to verse 17. If we're children, we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the glory in front of us at minimum is being glorified with Jesus. That is to say that we will one day set aside these mortal bodies that suffer under the curse for immortal bodies that will be beautiful and will never die. We'll be just like Jesus. That'll be that day when uh, you know, mortality is swallowed up by immortality when these dying bodies are transformed to be like his glorious body. That, the glory that's in front of us is at minimum that. Okay? But I don't think that's all Paul has in mind in this text. Let's keep reading verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us or in us. Now this seems to be talking about the same thing, that one day we'll be like Jesus. But then you keep reading, verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing, the unveiling of the sons of God. Now here again, what is it that the whole creation is longing for with eager longing? It's that the creation, this would be like non-human creation here, is longing for the sons and the daughters of God to be revealed, to be unveiled, is longing for us to be fully known as what we already are the sons and daughters of the living God. It's for us to finally arrive, to look like we should, to be all that we should be. It's for us to be unveiled as Jesus' brothers and sisters and as God's true children. So again, I think Paul's got his eyes primarily on us being glorified with Jesus and looking like Jesus. But did you notice again, who is longing for this? Creation. Long with eager, with eager longing. What does that mean? What is Paul talking about? He's picturing creation itself, like non-human creation, like the land and the trees and the animals, all straining forward, stretching out in anticipation, waiting, longing for what? For us to be revealed. But the question we would want to ask is, like, why? Why does the creation care, you know? 
And I, what does that even mean? I mean, it's also like, what is it? are the trees like, I don't know what that actually, you know, means, like that the trees and the, the animals are longing for this. But Paul's picture in creation is stretching out, longing for us to be revealed. Why? And that's what verse 20 answers. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. What's that all about? When, the creation, when was the creation subjected to futility? When did that happen? This is, he's thinking back to the garden. So he's reaching all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden. He's thinking about that horrible day when Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God. And what happened? What did God do in response? God pronounced his curse on the serpent, on the woman, on the man. But what else was cursed that day? Creation. The entire creation was put under the curse that day, and not willingly, Paul says. In other words, creation was beautiful, perfect, very, very good, and the creation itself did nothing against God. But because of our sin, this entire earth was put under the curse. But that wasn't the end of the story, and somehow, if we can kind of talk how, talk how Paul talks here, creation itself knows that that's not the end of the story. So creation itself, if you will, was listening in to the rest of what God said in the garden. <laughs> the creation didn't just hear the curses. The creation also heard the very same words of hope that Adam and Eve heard. Hope of what? Verse 20 again. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is the glory that lies ahead? It's not just us being glorified, us being made like Jesus. It's the glory of the entire creation too, being made new and glorious again. Creation itself, if you will, knows how to read the story of Scripture. In the Garden of Eden, we sinned, brought the curse, on not just us, but on all creation. But one day, and this is all because of Jesus, those connected to Jesus will be fully and finally and forever free from the presence of sin and death. And all creation knows that when that happens to us on that day, the whole creation will be next in line to be set free from the curse, to become all that it was meant to be. This is the story of Genesis to Revelation. This is the story of the Bible, from creation to new creation. And it's all made possible because of the saving, rescuing work of Jesus. But the truth is, we don't possess all of this yet, do we? Creation isn't there yet, and we're not there yet either. And so this leads us to the third question about this text that I want to talk about. How do creation and all the children of God feel in the in-between? Because we're not there yet to the end. So how do, how do we feel in this in-between time period? Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. How does the creation feel? Groaning, suffering, frustrated, languishing under the curse. Paul pictures the pain as the pain of childbirth. Creation longing for release, for the freedom to be made finally what God initially made it to be. Ever since the garden, creation has been groaning with the ch pains of childbirth, waiting, longing for all things to be made new, for the labor pains to pass, new life to begin. 
That's how creation feels in the meantime, in the in-between. But what about us? How do we feel in the in-between? That's verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. How do we feel? We groan too. We hurt. We lament. We feel the pains of the present age. We Christians do not stand like aloof and distant from the pains of the world around us. We don't look at the sorrows and the sins and the violence and the suffering all around us and just say, well, whatever, one day it'll all be different. Now we hurt and we groan and we sigh and we lament. Even as we consider our own lives, our sins, our failures to be what we should be, we feel what, what I think Moose says, the proper frustration of not being all we want to be, not being all that God saves us to be. We groan and we sigh. But for the sons and daughters of God, we don't groan in total despair. It's not a hopeless despair for the children of God. We hurt and we lament, but we don't do that without any hope. Now notice verse 23. Though we groan inwardly, we do that as we wait eagerly, expectantly, for our final adoption, the redemption of our bodies. See, we face the same sorrows, hardships, pains, and disappointments as anyone else in this age. Often even more so because we're connected to Jesus. And I know I, from what I've heard, like it's very common here for, uh, for churches, unfortunately, to preach what we might call the prosperity gospel or something to this effect, like where you're offering people freedom, maybe wealth and freedom from their pains and sufferings. But, but the reality is when you read the New Testament, Christians face the same sufferings and hardships and disappointments and frustrations as non-Christians. In fact, in, from the perspective of the New Testament, we will often face more after we become Christians than before. I mean, think of Paul's life. Was his life easier or harder after he came to Jesus? It was far harder than it was beforehand. We face the same kinds of sufferings, but God's children don't grieve and face those hardships like those who have no hope. We groan as we wait. Everybody groans in some ways, but we groan as we wait eagerly, expectantly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now that's pretty interesting there because Paul earlier said, okay, what about adoption? Like, are you adopted? Have you been adopted by God? Like, has that already happened to you? Yes, but then here, what are you waiting for? Adoption. And he also says about, this, about redemption. Have you been redeemed? Yes, it's clear earlier in Romans, but then what are you waiting for? Redemption, the redemption of our bodies. And, and I think this gives us a, some insight into Paul's theology here. Like we have been adopted, but yet we wait eagerly for adoption. We have been redeemed, but yet we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. This is what many will call the already not yet of Paul's theology. Like we've already been adopted into the family, but yet we still wait for the final full experience of that, the full unveiling of that. We've already been redeemed by the blood of Jesus set free from sin's penalty and power, yet we still await the final redemption of our bodies when we're raised with better bodies, never to die again. 
And Paul points out even that we've already had the first taste of what's in store for us. How? He's saying, like, we, we already have tasted the age to come. How? Because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And the Spirit is just the first taste of our final salvation. But that doesn't change that we still don't have everything that God has in store for us. We groan and we wait. So to pick up in verse 23 again. As in not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that's seen isn't hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. So what is a Christian response to suffering? In this text, we groan. We hope. We wait. We groan. We hope. We wait. This is what Christians do. We feel the pain. We don't ignore the suffering around us or the suffering of our brothers and sisters. We don't stand aloof from it, distant from it. We do feel the pains and sorrows of this age. In fact, I think God's people in many ways ought to feel the pain and brokenness of this age even more sharply. Not simply because we have the Holy Spirit, but also because we actually understand that this is not how it was meant to be. Like other people, they feel the sharp pains of this age, but they don't realize that this really isn't how it was supposed to be. Christians look at the pains and sufferings and brokenness and sin, and we realize this is not what God made this world to be. And this is not what it's always going to be. So we groan and we lament and we sigh, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We groan and yet we hope. Perhaps you notice in verse 24, Paul says that in this hope, we were saved. This is something you offer to people in the gospel. We were saved in hope. The gospel contains a message of hope. The one true message of hope. It's not only a message of forgiveness of sins. The gospel is also a message of hope. It's news, good news that we can be forgiven of our sins to the cross of Jesus, adopted into the family as his own sons and daughters, and given a future inheritance that far outweighs any present sufferings you might go through for identifying with Jesus. And how many people around us need to hear a message of hope like that? From a person who really grasps and cares about their pain. We should never ignore or run away from the hurting or the hopeless. Instead, we should run toward them with love and compassion, holding out to them the free offer of forgiveness through Jesus and holding out to them the hope of the gospel. And we should do that with each other too when we're hurting and reminding ourselves to remember our hope that we share. Because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one hope to which we've all been called. But, uh, but then I want to close the section with thinking, what, are, what else are we to do in the meantime, in the in-between? And the answer is we need to wait. Eagerly and expectantly, but also patiently. For the day when our hope becomes sight. Because one day we won't be hoping anymore. Not because our hope has disappointed us. And one day we won't be hoping because our hope will become sight. And then we won't be hoping anymore for it. But since we hope now for what we don't see yet, we have to wait with patience. Now, we work through uh, that section thinking primarily about one question. Is our future glory worth the present pain? And Paul's answer emphatically, yes. 
But there is a, a second question that I think the section addresses that we haven't talked about yet, and that, and that is how are we ever going to be able to make it? I think that is kind of just below the surface of everything in this text. Like, how are we actually going to be able to make it? Because this is hard. <laughs> Do you ever wonder if you'll be able to make it? If you'll be able to hold on? And I'm not asking whether you want to hold on, because I know you do. I do. But will we? Like, how will we be able to make it through these days or decades of suffering? These days where we groan because of the brokenness around us? And if you look at verses 18 through 25, what's the answer to that? Like, what is it that's going to help you to keep going? It's going to be hope. It's going to be that you have hope. That's what the whole section is about. It's about hope, how we have real hope. Now, I, I am, uh, my wife and I, we like, we like reading books or watching movies uh, about people who are like, should probably die, <laughs> but are trying to survive. I don't know if you like books or movies about this. I don't know why we like this, but, but we like this. So we'll watch like, uh, whether it's about really horrible like events, like the Holocaust, you know, we'll watch about like, uh, you know, people who ended up surviving through this and how they made it. Or we'll watch, uh, like, about, uh, you ever see or, or read the book Unbroken? Anybody ever read that book? Uh, it's pretty recent, by, about Louis Zamperini. You should, if, if you want to read a good book, read the book Unbroken. Uh, he was in a, World War II in a uh, Japanese prisoner of war, and he had been, like, an Olympian, and so they just, like, hated him and wanted to make him suffer. And, and, and you read this book, and, and I, won't, I won't spoil the ending, because that book goes in an incredibly encouraging direction. But, but I love reading stuff like this, you know, or like some, some random guy is stranded out in the ocean for like 90 days, you know, by himself. Like, I like that, you know, I like that kind of book, okay? So one of the things I realized through reading and watching all this kind of stuff is how important having hope is to being able to make it. And, and of course, people, some people have hope and they don't make it. But if you, if you like listen to, to all these stories of survivors from all over these, the world and all kinds of situations, one of the things they almost always point to of how they made it is that we just had this hope, you know, that we would be able to make it. And they know, and even if they had friends who lost hope, you know, a lot of times they didn't make it. And it was like that they just had this, this hope because without it, it was like impossible to go on. And one of the things that Paul is doing in this text is highlighting the power of Christian hope. Like, how will anybody be able to make it through these days of groaning and sighing and suffering? And Paul's answer is the power of the hope that you have. And, and the thing is, when Paul's talking about hope, he's not talking about, like, some sort of, like, uncertain hope that maybe just somehow will barely make it out of here. Like, because that's usually what's in those stories, you know? It's not like they had strong hope, but they just kind of, like, had this like little sliver of hope, like that maybe somehow we're going to survive. You know, there'll be land someday. But for Paul, like that's not the kind of hope he's talking about. Like the Christian has like this sure, settled confidence, like that there is glory ahead of us, real hope, a solid hope, so settled and secure, anchored in the faithfulness of God and in, his, and in the promises of a God who never lies. And so he, he realizes that hope will sustain us. And he's encouraging us like that hope, if you'll keep it in view, will give you strength when you're really hurting and when you're really suffering. And so in verse 24, again, he said, for in this hope we were saved. Hope that seen isn't hope, for who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we don't see, we can wait for it. We'll wait for it with patience. But that is not the only thing that Paul has to say about how we're going to be able to make it through these days of sadness and sorrow. And that's where I want to look at verse 26. And he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is it that helps us to keep going? It's not only the hope of glory. Paul says, likewise, or in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, there's, we've seen a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, but I think this is probably the most encouraging phrase about the Holy Spirit in Romans, because it's so short. I don't know how you could say something so encouraging in less words than this about the Spirit, than just to say that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, it is true that there are days when we'll feel stronger in our walk with the Lord than other days. But the truth is, even on our best of days, we're not all that strong. In, in this mortal body, in this evil age, we are all vulnerable. And I think I, even just from a different idea in the Bible, I think this is one of the ideas of why we're called sheep. You know, sheep, among many other uh, frustrating things, are are very vulnerable, okay? We are all that way. It's sometimes, from time to time, it's just we feel our weakness more sharply, but we're always vulnerable. Sometimes we really feel it. Perhaps when we're under trial, or we're feeling the pull back to our old sinful practices, or perhaps when we're feeling physically sick. I know when I'm feeling physically sick, like really sick, I'm just like, <laughs> realize how weak we are. Or sometimes we're just simply overwhelmed with all that we have to do. We feel in a fresh way, a sharper way, what's always true of us, that we're really not that strong, that we're all pretty weak, that we need help. And Paul has this incredibly good news for us. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. When we feel like giving up, when we're perhaps even losing sight of the hope of glory, the Spirit is still there. The Spirit's still with us in us to help us in our weakness. God's spirit is God's gift to us to help make sure we all make it home. Now, a natural follow-up question to that idea is, well, how does the spirit help us? You know, like what, what does the spirit actually do for us to help us in our weakness? And I think from Romans 8, you could answer that a lot of ways. There's a lot of things that the spirit does, but in this text, Paul just wants to highlight one way. Do you see it? As you look at verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Like, how? For we don't know what to pray for, as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Paul points out one of our weaknesses. What deficiency do we have in this text that the Spirit helps make up for. We, sometimes we just don't know what to pray, what to say to the Lord. And, and I think since this broader discussion is about suffering, I think it's likely that Paul has in mind the specific hard times when we're going through hard times in life, when we're facing trials or slander or grief or just great uncertainty. 
and we know that what we should do is pray. But we struggle because we don't even know what to say to the Lord. And I imagine you've been there at times in your life where you know you should pray and you even maybe want to pray, but you just don't even know what to say. What should we do anyway? Pray. Pray anyway. There may be such perplexing, distressing, or draining times in our lives that we perhaps don't even feel like we can pray. What should we do? Pray anyway. Even if all we can do is sit before the Lord and sigh. Do that. Or if all we can do is just pour out our frustrations and our emotions to the Lord, do that. The psalmists do that all the time. Why? It's because in those moments of weakness in particular, the Spirit of God comes to our aid in those moments. God's Spirit who dwells in our hearts intercedes for us to the Father. And just think about this. I don't, I don't believe this is mentioned in any other text in the New Testament. But this is an amazing thought. God's Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words, with pleas that we cannot even hear, but that God the Father can hear. And this is not the first time Paul talks about groaning in this text, is it? In verse 22, all creation was groaning. Verse 23, we're groaning. And now in this text, the Spirit himself is said to intercede for us in our weakness with groanings too deep for words. And I I think there is something mysterious about this, something I do not completely understand, something profound about the connection that God's Spirit has with us. God's Spirit seems to understand our pain and grasp our groans to such a degree that the Spirit himself intercedes for us to the Father with unspoken groans and sighs of his own. And that is like, I don't even, can't even get my mind around it. And notice Paul doesn't stop there by just saying that the Spirit does this for us. You read verses 26 and 27 together. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, (coughs) who is that? Probably the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So in verse 26, he says, we're told the Spirit intercedes for us. And in verse 27, we're told that the Spirit's intercession is always right on target. You see, our prayers, especially in times of confusion and doubt and frustration, are, shall we say, hit or miss. (laughs) But when God's Spirit is pleading for us to the Father, he never misses the target. Look at verse 27. He who searches heart, I think that's obviously God, specifically right, God the Father. Paul says, God the Father, the one who searches the depths of the human heart, which is where the Spirit dwells, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. That is to say, the Father is intimately acquainted with his Spirit, and that the Spirit's pleas for us resonate with the Father. Why? It's because the Spirit always intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You see, we often don't know what God's will is. We may know generally, but not specifically, not in regard to whether this situation should go this way or that way, or whether this circumstance should turn out this way or that way, but the Spirit of God knows all of that. And so in our weakness, especially when we don't know what to pray for, what should we do? We should pray anyway, trusting that 
our weakness, our limited knowledge, our deficiencies will be overcome by the Holy Spirit who knows our every longing, but who not only knows us, but also knows the Father and knows the Father's will for us inside and out. So back to our main question. How are we able to make it through these days of suffering and sorrow? The first answer in this section is hope, and the second answer is the help of the Spirit. And then for the final answer before we take a break, one of the most well-known texts in the whole Bible, one of the greatest texts in the Bible, Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice that Paul points us here to something we all know, or if we don't know it, we should know it. That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want to clarify a couple things, okay? When Paul says that this is true for those who love God, who are the people who love God? What's that? The elect? Christians? Is this like all Christians? Is he trying to say, for those who love God, like some Christians or like all Christians? All Christians, right? Like for Paul, tell him, what about Christians who don't love God? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) What are you talking about? Okay. So he's not trying to like say (laughs) only for some Christians, okay, by saying for those who love God, okay? This is his, Christians are those who love God. If you don't have any love for God in your heart, you just don't belong to God. You don't have God's spirit in you. Okay? Now, second, when Paul says that all things work together for good for those who are called, it's worth noting that in Paul's writings, when he talks about the called, who's he talking about? Or when he talks about calling, what is he talking about? For Paul, when God calls, people listen. Okay? This is how Paul talks about calling. And I, want, I just want to step back on that and think about that, because if you look at the whole New Testament on this, that's not always the case. Okay? And you have to let different authors use words in different ways and then just understand each one in its own context. So there are places in the New Testament that do talk about a general call or invitation of God to all people to come to Jesus. In those texts, sometimes that call is accepted and sometimes that call is rejected. Uh, Perhaps a really good example of this is in Matthew 22, where Jesus tells a story about a king who wanted to put on a wedding feast for his son. And so he sends out his servants to do what? To call all those who had gotten the invitations to actually come to the feast. But what what happened? They didn't want to come. He kept calling and they kept saying no. So eventually the king judges them and then starts calling anyone and everyone that he can find to come. And there's, of course, more to that story. But perhaps you can remember the closing line of that story. It says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Okay? So the language of calling can refer to a general call or invitation to come to Jesus, a call that is sometimes accepted and sometimes rejected. But when Paul uses this language, that is not what he has in mind when he talks about calling in his writings. In Paul's writings, those who are called by God answer the call. In other words, when God calls in Paul, God breaks through the heart of stone 
by the power of the gospel and the spirit to produce new life and true faith. So, so just when he's talking about this, this is the first time you see this, but it's not going to be the last time you see this in Romans. This is Paul's idea of calling, and you can look at that across his letters. Um, and so like in 1 Corinthians, he'll talk a lot this way as well. You know, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were this, this, and when you were called. Uh, think about the condition you were in when you were called. You know, he, you can maybe think about a lot of texts like this, okay? So, verse 28 again. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is Paul saying? He's assuring us that for God's children, all things work together for good. Or as some translations say, that God causes all things to work together for good for his children. And again, Paul has in mind especially the hard things of life. The kind of things that we probably don't think of as being very good. Paul wants to say, God works all of even those things together for good. Now the key question then is, what is our greatest good? And to answer that question, you have to read a little further. So verse 28, we've read, and then you read right into verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is our greatest good? And what was God's purpose in calling us? Those who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? All things work together for good. What is that greatest good? What is the good to be conformed to the image of God's son? It's the very same aim that God has always had for us, even before we were born. It's that one day we would look just like Jesus. And so do you know what God is doing to make sure that happens in your life? He's doing everything to make sure that happens in your life. He is actively working in every circumstance of our lives for this very thing, our greatest good, that we would look just like Jesus. You see, God is even more concerned about this than we are. We are very up and down, aren't we? We really do want to be like Jesus. I know we do if we have God's spirit. But that longing isn't always what it ought to be, is it? Like we waver in it. But God never wavers in this. His commitment to that goal is unswerving. It never changes. God is always working for this for you. That you would look just like Jesus. We'll, we'll, you'll, you'll have times when you're like, you really want to follow Jesus and there's going to be times when you're struggling and you're, and you're weary. And God never grows weary. He never faints. He, ne- he is always completely committed to this for you. Why? Why is God so committed to this? Look at verse 29 again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? In order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Do you know what God wants in the end? He wants his son that he loves so much to be surrounded by all of his sons and daughters. And he wants all those sons and daughters to be looking just like Jesus. See, the father loves the son. And he wants his son to be loved, adored, and reflected by every one of his brothers and sisters, the brothers and sisters that Jesus died for. And so even when we're wavering or reeling or wandering away, God never wavers. He never takes his eyes off of us or off the goal that he's always had for us, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. And that leads to the final verse before 
We'll take a little break, verse 30. One of the most assuring, comforting verses in the Bible. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom God marked out from ages past to be his own, he calls in space and time. God brings us all on different journeys. I haven't been able to hear every one of yours, but I know we, we all have different journeys. God always brings people on different paths. He'll even allow us to run different paths away from him for different amounts of time. But in the end, those God, that God has marked out from ages past to be his own, he calls. And those he calls, like this, answer his call. And those who answer God's call repent, to repent and put their faith in Jesus, God justifies. And those whom God declares righteous through faith, God glorifies. The timing of that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. From before the ages began to the end of the ages, when Jesus comes again and we are glorified. See, there is an unbreakable chain in this text from ages past to ages before us. And in the end, God will get exactly what he wants. And the good news for us is that what God wants is our greatest good too. God will always get what he wants. And what he wants is our greatest good. So we've been focused on one main question. How are we going to be able to make it through these days of sorrow? Given all of our weaknesses, and this text points to the power of Christian hope, the help of the Spirit, and the unswerving commitment of God to get us to the finish line. This is not to say that we don't need to follow Jesus, or that we don't need to walk, or we don't need to turn away from sin and say yes to the Spirit's leading. We do. But as Paul brings us to the end of the section, he wants us to remember that the unshakable ground of our security and assurance is not in us. The solid ground for our security and assurance is the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Spirit's constant help, and the unswerving commitment of God the Father to make us all like Jesus in the end. God's work is the unshakable ground of all assurance. And so then, as we, as we close, <clears throat> I would encourage you, again, when you don't know what to pray, what should you do? Pray anyway. In those moments, remember God's Spirit is interceding for you with prayers that line up perfectly with the will of God. And, and then, when we cannot grasp why things are happening the way that they are, or the way that we think would be best, we need to remember that God is absolutely, unreservedly committed to our greatest good, to making us all like Jesus. And so I used to hear this phrase often, let's not doubt in the darkness what God has shown us in the light. Like today, hopefully, you're encouraged and you're doing well. And you remember this, that God's spirit is helping you, that God is on your side, that God is always for you, always committed to your greatest good. But when we're in the darkness, often we doubt the things that we used to see when we were in the light. And so let's not doubt in the darkness what God shows us in the light.